welcome to Ipsa Dixit uh, Virtual Happy Hour Episode 1, hosted by Jennifer Sturiali, uh, with me as her uh, straight man, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, this is a new series, so we're not exactly sure what it's going to consist of yet, but we've got some ideas and hopefully we'll figure it out with our illustrious guests who uh, Jennifer will introduce to you and I'm sure will also introduce themselves. And uh, she'll also be framing the question that we're going to be talking about in today's episode. Yes. So today we have with us um, Mark Lemley and Jacob Victor and Gus Hurwitz. And if I may, I'd like to suggest that um, everyone, when they speak for the first time, just say who they are and um, what they're drinking. So I'm Brian L. Fry from the University of Kentucky College of Law, and I'm drinking a last word cocktail tonight. But I promise not to take the last word. So I'm Jennifer Sturiali, and I'm drinking some uh, Malbec uh, red wine. And I'm uh, Jacob Victor. I'm an academic fellow at NYU and I'm drinking some mediocre Sauvignon Blanc left over from my wedding, which was over a year ago, but we have like four cases of this stuff left, so I will be drinking it for a while. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm Gus Horowitz from the Univer University of Nebraska College of Law. I am drinking a, I don't know the right name for it, it's a either a Negroni or a Boulevardier with um, uh, Mezcal instead of uh, the base beer. So. Uh, mezcal, uh, Campari, and uh, sweet vermouth. Uh, I'm Mark Lemley from Stanford, uh, where it's uh, uh, only 4.30 in the afternoon, and uh, I feel like the only guy uh, who forgot his duck uh, at the convention, um, uh, because I, don't, I didn't bring my drink. <laughs> Come on, Mark, pour it four. We tried, we tried to make it sufficiently late so it wouldn't seem completely inappropriate for you to have a cocktail, Mark, but I, I, I still... I can disappear and come back with a glass of wine. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I, I Plus, what say, is Mark, uh, yesterday uh, I was doing a thing like this with some law and tech folk and we had a couple of people from UCLA uh, and it was I think three o'clock in the afternoon there and uh, they they decided to run over to their bar I mean what is time anymore anyway you know <laughs> it's like I finally understand what uh, if any of you watch Downton Abbey when the grandmother says like what is a weekend and now I finally understand, like, all, you know, every day is the same. Yes. <laughs> Why not drink at four in the afternoon? And so today we thought that a topic um, that would be interesting is, I started with the assumption, the idea that there are two ideas in IP law that um, the genesis of which are essentially an argument of the idea that of the variety more is more. So in copyright, there's the argument that Copyright law constrains speech, um, but more speech is generally better, so copyright law should accordingly be constrained. Um, and then speaking on a topic close to Brian's heart, the idea that um, plagiarism, right, that there's a similar argument to be made about uh, plagiarism, that plagiarism rules and norms actually constrain speech. Um, in patent law, there's an argument that more innovation is generally better, and that patent laws should have as one of their primary objectives, encouraging innovation. So essentially that more innovation is better. And so I thought it would be interesting to consider whether there could be a case made for less is more. Mm. Sort of the contrarian view of these sort of assumptions that not all but many IP scholars make. Mm. So with that, I, um, I open the floor and I'm interested in hearing what you all have to have to say. Well, who, who'd like to lead it off? I know, Gus, that you have some recent work on the question of whether more speech is better. Um, maybe you'd like to make some initial remarks and other people could follow up from there. Yeah, I'm, I'm all about jumping in and derailing things quickly. Um, so <laughs> I, I say that because um, Brian and I had a, a chat a couple weeks ago um, uh, for Ipsa Dixit about a project I'm working on that's uh, not really about uh, IP law, it's not about copyright or patent law, but it's about speech and uh, social media and in particular information theory. Um, and uh, information theory, I'm not going to give the whole spiel uh, right now, but uh, it, it studies 
the efficient transmission and uh, optimal compression of information and what information actually is. Um, and one of the uh, uh, important holdings, one of the important findings of information theory um, is that any given communications channel has a maximum capacity, a maximum amount of information that it can transmit. Um, and that is measured in terms of the ratio between signal to noise. Uh, and once you exceed that uh, uh, um, channel capacity, any additional stuff that you put onto it that otherwise ordinarily would be information, would be signal, it becomes noise. It's interpreted as noise and it actually decreases the overall uh, bandwidth available on that communications channel. Um, so uh, to uh, riff on Jennifer's question, is there a, a point or is there a case where less might be more? What information theory tells us is actually there is a point in uh, some contexts where more is actually less. Where when you try and communicate more information, not only is it not interpreted as information, but it takes away from everyone else. So there's a real negative externality to producing more there. That's somewhat orthogonal to, but I think nonetheless related to uh, uh, the discussion that uh, we're going to uh, uh, jump into on the copyright patent innovation side. Uh, and at some point I might also riff on uh, monopolistic competition and competition is a scarce resource, but uh, that would be a double derailment. And uh, I understand uh, most tracks only have two rails. So if I derail both of them this early on, I'm out of derailments. I, just a quick question, though. When you mentioned um, communication channels, I, I, I wonder, because I'm sorry I'm not familiar with your paper, but is it, um, do you actually mean like physical channel or do you mean it more conceptually? So are you talking about the way a, a, a person who consumes information experiences it or are you talking about like the actual physical channels of communication? Right, so information theory uh, uh, deals with uh, physical communications channel and electromagnetic, electromagnetic spectrum mm -hmm. um, in the paper. And it's fine you haven't read it yet because I have a early draft version of this paper that came out as an essay and I'm now working on the bigger, fuller blown uh, uh, version. Uh, so you couldn't have read it yet. <laughs> um, uh, but in the paper, um, I, uh, uh, analogize and I give some reason to explain why I think it's a fair analogy. Uh, individuals' ability to uh, consume information uh, faces a similar boundary. Um, so uh, it, it's uh, definitely a uh, analogical argument. Can I, um, can I throw in a couple of thoughts on that? So it's a really interesting analogy and, and the, you know, this problem or this idea of information overload I think has been with us for some time. Um, one of the things which seems to me comes from the fact that the idea has been with us for some time uh, is maybe a recognition that like communications technology, there is no hard and fast limit dictated by physics, except at the extreme, it's dictated by how good the technology is, right? And so the, the signal, the communication, maximum communications bandwidth of a fiber optic cable today is quite different than that of a coaxial or a, or a twisted pair wire cable, right, from, uh, from decades ago. Uh, and I wonder if there might not be an analogy here too, right? Um, I think human brains are actually processing a lot more information a lot more quickly than they were uh, several decades ago. Uh, and if you go back and look at even sort of individual information channels. Uh, I mean, one of the things you can notice if you watch an old movie, for instance, um, is how almost unbearably slow they are uh, relative to modern uh, video. Even the ones, the action movies of the 1960s and 1970s are kind of ponderous uh, by modern standards. Now, you know, people talk about this idea that, well, hey, life has accelerated and things are, are, are moving faster and maybe they're moving too fast. But, but it might also be the case that actually our brains have a lot of capacity to process information that was underutilized because it was under-tested in a world in which uh, all we got was kind of one channel input that had a relatively slow throughput rate. Uh, and as we're getting more information from more and more sources, that's not to say we can't overload it, uh, or even that we haven't already overloaded it, but that we're actually getting better and better at multitasking, at processing different kinds of information, at learning things and, and responding to them more quickly. Yeah, it's a really great point. Um, and uh, uh, two 
comments in response. First, one of the things I get into um, in my work uh, uh, on this topic is uh, a growing body of psychology research, psychological research on language. Um, and one of the big uh, uh, studies here uh, uh, looks at the information density of various languages around the world. And it actually finds that most human languages have an information density that's roughly constant. So it doesn't matter if you're speaking Mandarin, Chinese, or French, or English. Our ability to process spoken language um, falls generally for most people within a uh, uh, finite range. Now on the technology side, um, you're exactly right. Uh, there are different technologies that allow us to deal with or handle information differently and uh, in different uh, rates. One of the standard ones in network engineering is you decrease the noise on a channel. So it's that signal to noise ratio. You filter out the bad and you're able to get more. And in fact, if you have zero noise on a channel, you have infinite bandwidth. Um, another one, and this goes to uh, the uh, really interesting point about uh, movies, um, uh, compression or changing dictionaries. If you have the ability to pre-communicate, um, then you can exchange more information, but it's a limited amount of information that you can exchange. Um, so if, uh, Mark, you and I agree that the word banana means that it's uh, 58 degrees outside, sunny, and uh, there was bad traffic this morning, then with one word, we can communicate a whole lot of information, um, but uh, we can't use that word for anything else. So we've actually taken a bit of uh, our vocabulary that we could otherwise use away, um, and we've replaced it with a very specific uh, dictionary-defined word. Um, and uh, when movies were a new thing and people were first experiencing them, a lot of what people were doing wasn't, I'm going to pay attention to the plot. Um, oh, wow, Humphrey Bogart just did this really cool thing. It's a, wow, this experience. And uh, today, I can't watch most modern movies because there's so little narrative. It's just action sequence, action sequence, action sequence. And those are memes, they're ideas. They're indicating, okay, you know what this plot element tells us, so we don't need to give you the character's backstory. Um, uh, I much prefer uh, uh, going back and uh, uh, watching Reality Bites, uh, reference to our discussion before we started recording. Uh, there's a, a lot more richer character development, a lot more uh, interesting stuff going on. It's a slower movie than Transformers 2. Mm. I wonder, um quickly in response to Mark's comment, whether it's at least possible that part of what is causing the sort of experience that he's observing is that older texts, and especially really old texts, communicate a lot of information that people today don't understand anymore. And so part of the reason they seem slow or uh, less kind of full of content is just because we don't have the vocabulary or the language to understand what they're communicating anymore. And contemporary texts seem more dense because we understand the meaning that they're conveying more deeply. Can you give an example of that? Um, well, so example, I, I've been working a lot on like medieval Irish hagiography. Um, and, you know, a lot of those texts seem really dry, really boring, and really formulaic to modern readers. But um, at least the, my presumption is that they were very meaningful and communicated a lot to the people in, in the moment um, who were writing, producing, and using them for various purposes. And they were you know, situated in a historical context where each one of them meant a great deal and had deep and rich layers of illusion and metaphor that we don't understand anymore. And so when we look at the text today, right, we're actually seeing a much less rich version of a text that in historical context actually meant a lot more than we understand today. And I think the same is arguably true for a lot of like older films or books, you know, um, even from a period that's not quite that long ago. You know, and I would suggest like a related concept to this idea that in our context allows us, our, our, our present context, our historic, our context now, right, allows us to understand things in movies, for example, that move very fast is the idea too that we use lots of things as filters for information. So <clears throat> for good or for bad, right, you, 
you filter information by relying on particular sources over others. So you're not reading five newspapers, you're <clears throat> reading one or reading excerpts of two. Um, and you use the newspaper as a proxy for some sort of beliefs or values that you hold, right? And, and I, I think that were you to say, well, now there's, you know, hundreds of newspapers or that's declining, but there's hundreds of newspapers, I should read all of them. And that, that would be uh, a, an unsurmountable task. But because we now have, we have, as we have more information, we have more filters. So I, so think, oh. I think that, go ahead. Oh, so, so to tie that idea back to copyright, I mean, should we understand what copyright is doing is essentially operating as one of those filters? I mean, by, by providing essential, by essentially tying creativity and speech to, to the market, you know, instead of giving, giving creators a sort of limited uh, monopoly over their creations in order to sort of recoup whatever costs they put into it, I, creators are not going to invest in content that, that you know, doesn't hit sort of the cultural tropes that uh, there's sort of demand for. Um, so, you know, looking at it through that lens, actually what copyright should in theory be doing or maybe is doing is actually providing that, that kind of filter that we, we need by filtering out content that people are simply not, um, have, no, have no bandwidth for processing. Well, although, I mean, so, I, I mean, I, I, I take Jennifer's point, right? Um, uh, and we are absolutely using filters, right, to, to manage the, the fact that maybe we have too much information and certainly we have more uh, information than we, than we used to. But we, we, we had filters in the past, too. It's just that we weren't in charge of them, right? And so, uh, you know, the fact that you've got thousands of individual news sources and you have to kind of come up with heuristics for who I believe and who I don't believe is in one sense a problem, but it's also in one sense, I think, a tremendous opportunity uh, relative to a world in which you had two or three news sources, most of which agreed about most things most of the time, or you know, in communist Russia, one news source, uh, right? And, um, and, and so, there, so you can filter information at the uh, distribution level, which is how we've traditionally done it when movement of information was hard, um, or you can filter it at the retail level, at the consumer level, which is, I think, what we're increasingly doing as it becomes easier to push lots of information out to lots of people from lots of sources. Uh, you know, my guess is there are pros and cons to each of those approaches, right? I don't like the fact that so much misinformation can spread uh, from person to person that probably that would never have made it on, you know, Walter Cronkite or the New York Times in the uh, in, a, in a prior era. On the other hand, I quite like the idea that we're not limited by uh, somebody's choice of what is appropriate for us to watch or listen to. And we get to make most of those filtering decisions ourselves rather than having them made for us. So I, it's uh, worth noting, I think, um, we may have just reinvented a, uh, the thesis of an important article, uh, Jeannie Fromer's and uh, Information Theory of Copyright Law uh, from a couple of years ago. So uh, I, I don't know if we're implicitly talking about that or we just happen to be talking about similar uh, uh, ideas, but uh, citation. Uh, I, so uh, I, I've been doing a lot of uh, filming of videos for class right now, filming of lectures, and I'm uh, pre-recording them, doing, been doing lots of post-production. So right there, when it said citation, I put my fingers up. If this were my class, I would pop up the citation in a post-production so my students could see it there. Um, uh, so for folks listening, you should go look up uh, uh, Jeannie's article. Um, but it's a, a really interesting point. Uh, uh, and uh, to both uh, Jacob and uh, uh, Mark's point, um, uh, the locus of control is really uh, important to think about. Uh, these are both, as Mark says, uh, are rightly, uh, questions of filtering and who's doing the filtering. Um, and there are interesting uh, uh, endogeneity problems here because as the consumer of information, as the consumer of any content, you need to decide uh, uh, what filters you trust. And how do you decide what filters you trust? Well, that requires information. So there, there's a, a feedback loop there uh, that uh, is uh, worth highlighting as well. You know, just to return to something um, Jacob said, though, is this idea that 
is copyright serving as a filter? I mean, it may be as a matter of fact, but whether it should normatively is a different issue. And I think that's one of the questions, which is where copyright scholars uh, who are, who mostly argue for constraining copyright law more because it constrains speech is this idea that should copyright law be acting as a filter or should we put the locus of control on the consumer to constrain and filter information? And, you know, that I think that's the interesting question in terms of striking this balance between the First Amendment on the one hand and copyright law on the other. Um, do we think that copyright law is normatively should be serving that purpose or is it just de facto serving that purpose? I guess I'm, I am nervous about the idea. I mean, even if, even if we thought there's too much speech out there and we need to filter more of it, uh, the idea that the efficient way to do that is by saying, you know what, Disney should have more control over uh, what kind of uh, science fiction we watch. Uh, strikes me as unlikely to be optimal, uh, right? I, so, um, you know, I, I think copyright on the one hand, um, you know, is a way of decentralizing uh, uh, control because it says, uh, well, all right, um, uh, we'll, we can give actually a bunch of individual creators and owners some power and some autonomy that they can use uh, to get their uh, works out to an audience that wants to see them. It's mediated by the market, as Jacob notes, and that has, uh, you know, some problems because some things we don't necessarily want to be fully mediated by the market. News, for instance, uh, is arguably worse because it is mediated by the market. But uh, as a general matter, I think, you know, give, having that copyright, uh, uh, having that power uh, gives us a, a greater amount of decentralization. And I think that's a good thing. On the other hand, right, the problem is um, the broader we make the copyright control, the stronger we make the control, uh, the more difficulty everybody else runs into uh, producing their own versions of things. Uh, and so, you know, a, a, a Gus mentioned uh, earlier, maybe this is now the time in which we move into monopolistic competition theory, uh, right? But, um, uh, but you know, the, the, the idea that sort of copyright should be easy to get but narrow seems to me uh, pretty reasonable in a hoteling model, right, in which what I want is not actually one or a few people to dominate the discussion, but a bunch of different voices placed sufficiently uh, uh, distant from each other that people can choose to and get different perspectives. So, uh, interestingly, Mark, in, in terms of to, to move into the innovation space here for a bit, the monopolistic competition idea may work in the copyright idea, copyright realm of things, but when we move into this idea that, you know, as you have monopolistic competition, it actually can make consumers ultimately worse off, at least, um, at least theoretically, insofar as it, it can raise prices for consumers, they don't necessarily get greater welfare, and so it's not clear that more competitors actually, more monopolistic competitors, that is, actually makes consumers better off. And so similarly, this idea, I don't know if this idea translates quite so well in the copyright scheme, the copyright realm that we were talking about, but at least in the innovation scheme, there's this idea that it's another uh, data point for this idea that more is not necessarily better, right? That more can be less. So I, I have uh, a sort of bizarre position of being the defender of intellectual property here on this group. Um, uh, but I, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I, while I think that can be true at the extremes, uh, I guess I'm, I'm more skeptical of it on the patent side than I am on the copyright side, right? I, Gus tells a story about information overload and how we're, we're just kind of overloaded with stuff. I don't think we're anywhere near innovation overload. And I don't think we're at a position where right, we have too many good technologies and ideas and don't know what to do with them. Uh, and, and there's not room for kind of more to, to, to crowd in. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't 
bad technologies, right? Technologies with bad consequences we want to worry about. It doesn't mean you couldn't ever be in that place, but but I guess I'm, yeah, you know, maybe, I mean, I guess you could tell the story that there are too many apps on the app store, right? And so uh, a bunch of good ones get lost in the shuffle. So maybe that's a, that's a version of kind of an, innovation crowding out. Well, it's, just, it's, not, so, it's not just the idea that, that more innovation writ large, right? It's the idea of within a given sort of market, more innovation, right? So there's this debate called the, um, I have to remember what it's called here, the Apple Cinnamon Cheerio Wars. I don't know if you're familiar with this debate between uh, Bresnahan and I can't remember the other economists, right, this moment. But this idea, like, does the introduction of um, Apple cinnamon Cheerios actually make consumers better off when you have regular Cheerios. And, you know, this, I, and, and there we're talking about a, a smaller, more narrow market. And the idea that once you have this introduction, does demand actually, um, demand might go up, but we have actually, because of price differentiation uh, and because of monopolistic competition, we actually can have prices go up in both Cheerios and Apple cinnamon Cheerios and actually consumers could be made worse off. It just depends on how much welfare they get from the introduction of Apple cinnamon Cheerios. And so it's not the innovation writ large, it's this idea of like innovation within a given market. And I think that it's at least arguable that some innovations don't necessarily make consumers better off. Right. Well, I'm loving this discussion because I, I think lots of our normal positions, at least, uh, uh, Jacob, I apologize. I don't know you well enough to know if your positions are getting reversed, but Mark and my positions might be getting reversed uh, a little bit. Uh, so first I have to say, um, when you said Apple Cinnamon Cheerios, I thought you were talking about Apple branded Cinnamon Cheerios instead of Apple Cinnamon Cheerios. Um, so for <laughs> listeners, we're talking about Apple, the fruit, not the technology company. Apple Cinnamon Cheerios. Um, yes, uh, sorry. Uh, the, the, the flavor of Cheerios, Apple Cinnamon Cheerios versus regular Cheerios. Yes. Yes, hyphenation matters. Um, uh, so uh, two, two comments I'd like to make. Um, first, uh, going back to the copyright discussion for a moment, uh, I find myself in the odd position of being the defender of fair use. Mark is defending copyright, I'm defending fair use. Um, uh, there's a interesting argument, copyright is the filter. Perhaps it's filtering too much, too little uh, of what's going on to the communications channel or getting out to the market. But fair use uh, is a counter filter that allows signal to continue to get uh, into the uh, marketplace of ideas. So if we have uh, First Amendment important, it's socially important news, commentary, parody, et cetera, we say, okay, this is allowed under fair use because we don't want this filtered out. So uh, uh, an interesting uh, uh, information theory understanding there. On the question of is too much information, uh, too much innovation a, a bad thing? Um, one of the uh, things that uh, I have been thinking about uh, uh, a lot uh, lately in particular um, is the allocation of innovation. If uh, innovation is itself a scarce resource, that is, uh, there are only so many people out there capable of competing in the marketplace of innovation, trying to come up with uh, new ideas, new products, new technologies, um, uh, do we want them uh, all competing after uh, the dollar bill on the app store, or do we want them uh, competing to develop new ways to uh, uh, make face masks and ventilators? Um, do we want them coming up with a new great technology or do we want them doing incremental innovation? Um, and we generally think of innovation as something to be encouraged uh, that we uh, want to subsidize through the patent system. Uh, we think of it in all these different ways. Um, it's a finite resource. And I think when we think of uh, innovation as a finite resource <coughs> and uh, allocative efficiency in uh, innovation markets, uh, it changes how we think about it. So we're nowhere near the point of too much innovation. In fact, we're at the point of far too little innovation. So how do we allocate it is a really important question. Yeah, I actually think this is a fundamental issue um, uh, in economics and, and uh, uh, sort of not just the kind of uh, product differentiation piece that Jennifer talks about. Um, I mean, I think if, one way to think about the debate is um, uh, sort of are there, um, you know, are there kind of good ideas that don't 
going to get funded. Uh, and, you know, a kind of pure economic uh, uh, theory might say, well, no, that's crazy. That's leaving the $20 bill on the street. Um, you know, we don't have to worry about which, which drugs pharmaceutical companies make because if there's another efficient drug out there, they'll just raise more money and they'll make both of them. Um, I think, I mean, I think I agree with Gus that that, that, oh, that misses something important, right, which is the conditions for innovation, you know, may require money, but they are not uh, uh, coextensive with money. And so one of the things intellectual property does that's good is, like on the copyright side, the patent side gives us a kind of diverse set of uh, of sort of choice and filtering mechanisms. We don't just get whatever innovation the government is willing to pay for. Uh, we get a variety of different innovations, you know, whether or not the government is willing to pay for it. Uh, but the uh, but the flip side is right. The market is not the only mechanism uh, that uh, that we want from innovation, and it's going to encourage particular types of innovation and not others, uh, right? And so. Uh, you know, my colleague Lisa Ouellette has talked about uh, sort of how to think about various different innovation incentive mechanisms uh, in interaction with each other, right? Uh, and it may be that, you know what, we actually do want to encourage more people to get out of the, uh, I'm going to build an app space, uh, or, uh, you know, I'm going to come up with better and more effective dark patterns that make it hard for you to click through on what you want to click on without seeing ads and get them building robots or get them building uh, life-saving drugs or something else. I, but I think that can be true without, um, without denying the kind of value or force of the, of the sort of market as a mechanism for driving lots of innovation in the first place. And out here too, we started with this idea that you know maybe maybe the attention was was not fixed but could change over time. I think that's certainly true of innovation, right? And uh, we see throughout history kind of cycles of kind of more versus less innovation, uh, and uh, and I think we can influence that, right? And if we think in innovation is scarce even now at a time when arguably we have more innovation than we ever have before, uh, I think there are things you can do to kind of drive more innovation. Uh, and, uh, and that's true, not just by kind of pushing it into the market and innovating in the ways the market wants, but it may mean we, we want more uh, levers of all types to be pulled. Well, so, so Mark, maybe to, to, to reframe that a bit or just, rephrase it the idea that more can be more but it's like more of what type right so that if patent law or, or regulations more generally were going to do something aspirationally what they might do is encourage not just innovation but certain kinds of innovation and re reorient where innovation dollars are spent so and i think right and this is why gus's point about scarcity right becomes really important right if we think the answer is we've got uh, an unlimited supply of innovation and we just need to turn it on. Uh, well, right, more patents are great, right? More uh, government expenditure is great, right? Let's, let's do it all. Because I don't think we're in a world here where we're reaching kind of consumer overload and we're not gonna benefit from those innovations. If we think, as Gus suggests, that no, actually what we've got is a problem of scarcity, right? There are not nearly enough people to, uh, smart enough and kind of educated enough to sort of invest in making the good ideas, then we have to think about how we as a society want to allocate those scarce resources. Um, in general, in this country, we've done pretty well with the market allocating resources, but that might not be universally true, right? And just as um, uh, you know, we're nervous about uh, pharmaceutical money all going to, to make Viagra and not going to make anti-malarials uh, because that's where the market's driving it. We might want to reorient the market around, uh, reorient away from the market to try to drive innovation in sectors that the, that the market would underprovide. So uh, another way to uh, think about this, um, uh, economists talk about cost and as opportunity cost. Uh, in where you have a great deal of scarcity, opportunity cost of misinve uh, misinvestment is very high. 
So if we uh, have someone who could be developing an anti-malarial drug that's incredibly valuable for society, but instead they uh, come up with uh, apple cinnamon Cheerios, a very incremental marginal uh, 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 innovation, and great, they make $5 million from their innovation, well, they've actually cost society $10 billion making up numbers, in which case that's a massive net loss for society. The opportunity cost of their $5 million uh, worth of uh, value they've created is $995 million, or I guess I said 10 billion. You know the, the math. So thinking in terms of opportunity cost, if we misallocate uh, is uh, from an economic perspective, incredibly important. Right, and the problem is, Right, that um, uh, that works if we happen to know uh, what the costs and benefits are going forward, right? And the and the argument for the market is uh, we don't know that, and if we if we have the government, uh, you know, allocate uh, uh, resources in innovation, for instance, we'll get some great innovations, and we might get some more obviously socially valuable innovations. Um, but I think we're going to lose a lot of things which might turn out to be more socially valuable. Right? Not apple cinnamon Cheerios, but you know, I don't think we would have had smartphones. Uh, the government wouldn't have thought, "Hey, that's worth investing a huge amount of money in." Um, and you know, I think smartphones uh, have uh, sort of extraordinary social value of a kind that nobody 20 years ago could remotely have predicted. I mean, I wonder in that context whether sort of the risk tolerance question becomes important. I mean, for innovators, of course, they're all operating in, you know, on the margins, kind of trying to predict where their innovative resources are going to be best invested. And, you know, I guess maybe my question is like, how would we think about the government sort of thinking about encouraging innovation in the areas where on the margins innovator is going to be least likely to think investing is worth, you know, is valuable for themselves, even though it would be valuable for society? Yeah, so the, it's a, a fundamental uh, question and challenge in innovation. Um, one of the, uh, unfortunately, Brian, you've opened the door to my talking about, about uh, Bell Labs, um, and that, that's never a good thing. Um, uh, Bell Labs was one of the most innovative entities in the history of humanity. They did incredible, incredible work that would have never been possible, but for the fact that they were a government-protected monopoly that expected they would be around forever, uh, that uh, expected that any fixed costs that they invested into research and development, they could uh, recuperate with a return on investment. Um, I, you had uh, uh, one of my favorite stories about Bell Labs. Um, they uh, needed to figure out, Bell Labs was one of the greatest material science research outfits uh, in, uh, in the world. People think about the transistor. They did things with plastic. Um, one of the uh, big things that they did uh, in the 20s or 30s, they needed to figure out how to treat um, telephone poles, what chemicals to treat them with in order to protect them from the environment. So they buried them for 10 years. Uh, they buried a bunch of telephone poles for 10 years with different treatments and then dug them up uh, later in order to figure out, okay, how do we actually uh, 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 treat uh, these telephone poles? That is the sort of thing that you can only do if you have the arrogance of a company that thinks that you're going to be around forever. Well, um, yeah, or, or a government that does, right? right. I mean, you know, down, down the street for me is a, is a sort of, uh, you know, a large scale particle accelerator uh, that costs an enormous amount of money to build uh, to learn fundamental things about the universe. Uh, right, uh, no company would do that, even a company with a monopoly, right? But, uh, but uh, we can afford to engage in basic research. So I, I, I think Gus's story about Bell Labs is, is valuable. Um, and I'm not sure I think the lesson is, you know, let's uh, insulate uh, folks from competition. Uh, because, I, um, uh, because I think one of the things that Bell Labs had going for it was insulated, insulation from competition. But there's something else which it seems to me we've lost, and now we're on to my hobby horse about my exit strategy paper. Um, uh, and that is, um, uh, that is the idea that sort of what I'm doing is building and creating an enduring company uh, and not maximizing uh, quarterly profits for the shareholders, right? And if you took, it, if you took an AT&T 
uh, and said, okay, we're going to insulate you from competition and give you a lucrative monopoly going forward, and you plop them in today's market environment, they wouldn't take that money and put it into um, uh, uh, building a Bell Labs uh, because they could. They'd take that money and uh, uh, pass it out to shareholders, and we might, you know, the yacht business and the and the private airline business would probably do quite well. Uh, but it's not obvious that that money gets reinvested into research uh, in the sort of modern corporate environment. And so I think what one about of the, the go ahead. sorry. What about the Google Alphabet example? I don't I don't know a lot about this, but Google essentially turning you know, uh, spinning off, take, taking a large share of its revenue and sort of investing in, in all of these kind of innovative, smaller companies. Um, what, 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 do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that's the closest example we've got. Uh, but if you look at the differences, it's quite interesting, right? So um, Google starts to do that when it's actually quite a young company. Uh, and in fact, it comes out of uh, this idea that, uh, that it's going to give its engineers 20% of their time to just work on whatever side projects they're interested in, uh, right? And that's done primarily as a, as a way to keep their engineers happy and retain them. Um, uh, what we've seen as uh, Google has become a large publicly traded company uh, is that those, uh, uh, those side bets uh, mostly fall by the wayside. Uh, some of them maybe succeed, but if they're not succeeding in a way that looks like it's going to generate a bunch of money, uh, right, and maybe we'll have self-driving cars via Waymo, uh, they get killed off or they get kind of shunted off uh, into the side because they're not contributing to the bottom line. And in fact, the, the decision to turn Google into Alphabet a few years ago, I think most observers saw as a way to take the core money-making parts of the company uh, and separate them from those money losing things uh, uh, to make it easier uh, to, to kill them off. Uh, so I, you know, so none of this is to say, right, uh, right, no one is investing in basic research. I think people are, that there isn't any value to sort of investing in, uh, in, in having companies uh, with a lot of brain power and the resources. Uh, but I do think there's gotta be some kind of drive to, uh, uh, to kind of innovate either for innovation's sake or because we see some long-term payoff. Uh, and the more we drive corporate work with a short-term focus, the harder it is to uh, uh, invest in that long-term payoff and to tell a story to your shareholders of why it's acceptable. Yeah, uh, and that, uh, you know, the flip side, uh, I mean, if you look at the contrast with Apple to me is quite interesting, right? Where, uh, you know, Apple's an extremely successful, innovative company, but, you know, we build a couple of things and that's what we build. And they're sitting on, well, before the market crash, they were sitting on something like $300 billion in cash uh, because they literally don't know what to do with their money. Yeah, that uh, all strikes me as exactly right. Um, the, the puzzle is how do we do long-term investment? Um, and uh, I, I had exactly in mind, Mark, uh, the uh, juxtaposition of Bell Labs with uh, the focus today on exit strategies with VC. Uh, and the point about uh, Google is really uh, important, um, not just for uh, the reasons that you mentioned, but uh, risk capital generally requires risk amortization. It requires some uh, ability to say, we're going to take three or four gambles and expect uh, two or three of them to fail with the expectation that one of these will succeed. And if we're large enough, we'll be the entity to commercialize it. We'll be the entity to run with this for the long term. Um, I uh, am fascinated by, I honestly don't know what the motivation for uh, uh, SpaceX's Starlink satellite internet service uh, is. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Uh, arguably, there's a pure profit motive involved with it. Arguably, it's a complementary product to the rest of what uh, Elon Musk's empire is doing. Um, arguably, it's just, hey, this is a really good, cool thing. Um, but uh, the notable thing is it's SpaceX and Elon Musk. It's a, a big entity doing this. And um, we can take this back to the idea of copyright and information and news. Uh, are we better off in a world with uh, 500 newspapers where a, we have 100 each representing a slightly different perspective or worldview 
or are we uh, better off in a world with five big newspapers uh, where you still have those same five worldviews being represented and uh, uh, you have competition? And this is a natural monopoly sort of uh, issue. Uh, and I don't have an answer, but it's important to recognize that it's about the efficient allocation of scarce resources. So I, I hear you, although I worry that what we'll have is five newspapers representing one worldview uh, and not representing five different worldviews. And I think, you know, that's, a, that's, the, that's the bigger risk to me. It is, the Elon Musk story is, is worth noting. And I think if you think about it, if you go back and look at what are the companies that are doing these uh, sort of crazy innovative things today, uh, they're almost all driven by uh, single entrepreneurs um, who maintained an unusual level of control over their companies. Google did all of the kinds of things that Jacob was mentioning when it was actually Larry and Sergey who held on to control of the company. And even after they'd gone public, they still had a majority share, right? Once we got rid of that, once it became driven by the marketplace, the, the dictates of the market start to move. Elon Musk holds on to uh, uh, large shares of his uh, of his companies and can can do a lot more uh, to to control. Uh, you know, in a weird way, um, right, they are bucking uh, the sort of kind of mobility of capital system, which has given us a lot. But one of the things I think it has taken away from us is the idea that you build something that endures, right? And the companies of a hundred years ago that are here to stay and something that my children will inherit, right? Uh, or that you know, we expect will be around in 10 years when we dig the poles up. Um, uh, are, uh, it's not that they don't exist, I think they do exist and they, you know, they can perpetuate themselves, but increasingly they do it either by a single-minded focus on the bottom line uh, or because uh, there's somebody there who's a maverick enough and with enough power to resist that bottom. And you also arguably see the sort of perverse side of the maverick model in something like Theranos, where the sort of fetishization of innovation actually um, prevents the company from even develop, you know, from, from worrying about the bottom line in a way that they should. Uh, and, you know, and, and you end up with, you end up with, with something like that. So on some level, if, you know, if, if Theranos had been like Bell Labs, if Theranos had been, had some kind of government regulation, we probably wouldn't have, it may have actually been a, a more successful, you know, enduring company rather than sort of the, you know, the little explosion of publicity that it was before everything fell apart. Maybe, although I, I see Theranos as kind of the problem with the VC market model, right? That this was a, this was a company started with a, we, we will turn this around to something huge in a few years, uh, right? And get the VCs paid. Uh, built in a Silicon Valley model for, for which that's, that's the norm and for which it's worked lots of, uh, uh, of the time, right? So I don't, um, you know, I, I, see, I see Theranos as, a, as, as a, a, we're trying to actually respond to the dictates of the market and, and the VC world. Uh, and so we're going to tell you we've got something uh, even when we don't. So Mark, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but my understanding is that many smaller startups actually uh their their end game is actually to be acquired ultimately by a google or an apple or some other firm larger firm that has a lot of capital to then purchase them wholesale and all their ip well i yeah that's i so that's right and so the the, the exit strategy paper i mentioned uh, basically tells a story of how the venture capital model that has driven so much success in Silicon Valley is also driving consolidation in the Valley. Because when you start a company, you have to think about, all right, how am I going to end it? Right? That's crazy from the perspective of 100 years ago, right? I mean, no one would start a company thinking, okay, when will I go out of business? How can I sell out uh, and cash out? Uh, but it's how everybody in Silicon Valley thinks right now. And that... 20 years ago, right, how did you cash out? How did you make it big? That was an IPO. And the good thing about an IPO is, uh, well, at least you're still running a company, right? Now people have invested in it and, um, uh, and the, the market has changed, but you still have an ongoing business. As IPOs have gotten fewer and further between, right, the way I make my money, the way I cash out and the way I get my VCs and my employees paid is I sell the company. Well, who buys the company? 
increasingly it's the incumbents, right? They have the most to gain. They have the most to lose if I don't sell. Uh, they have lots of money sitting around. Uh, they might have the most kind of knowledge of which of these companies are most valuable. And so we're seeing kind of this, uh, all of the <coughs> things that might have been Schumpeterian disruptive competition uh, in a prior generation kind of bought up and co-opted uh, uh, by the tech giants. And, and to me that, and not sort of kind of the tech giants in and of themselves is the, is the real thing that should worry us from a competition perspective. Sorry, I say, so this is one of my hobby horses, which is that the potential competition doctrine, right? Which is that what you have now is, is this, these is this the fact that these incumbents acquire firms and they have the money to do so, how does that affect if, you know, innovation, right? Is the fact that a Google or an Apple can acquire a smaller company and they can cash out entirely, is that what incentivizes the innovator in the first instance? Uh, and then it possibly, and then how is that weighed against the fact that we now don't have Apple and Google actually making these same sort of investments to make the same sort of innovations and that our competition policy, our, the way that our, our merger approval doesn't look more um, carefully and uh, at these sorts of acquisitions to prevent them because it's what when I say used to be called, I mean, it still is called a potential acquisition that's of a potential competitor. It's just that it's not really enforced anymore. So it seems like it was something that we, we, we used to, <laughs> phrases we used to use. So, so I wonder what the, the net effect is of the fact that we allow these sorts of acquisitions to happen. So uh, a couple of thoughts, uh, and uh, perhaps uh, Mark will jump in afterwards to explain why I'm completely wrong and he disagrees with me. Um, uh, First, on, on the merger and acquisition side, uh, let me actually start with a, a zero before first. Um, uh, this is all driven, or the problematic parts of this in my mind are driven by uh, the VC side of things, where the seed funding for the companies that are getting started comes in because they're looking for firms that will get acquired. They're looking for the exit strategy. That's what's driving uh, uh, the funding ecosystem. Uh, the big tech companies, Google, uh, they view this system as a great way to identify talent. It is frequently easier for them to buy a startup uh, than to hire a bunch of employees, expecting that one in a hundred of the employees that they hire is going to lead to some great new in, uh, 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 innovation, some new product. So this is a hiring strategy, both for the big firms and also the people who are looking to get into this game. They're looking to get into uh, the sector. Um, the allocation question, uh, the what products are being innovated and developed, that's driven by the VC side of things, not the individual innovators necessarily. Um, on the uh, potential uh, competition side of things, uh, there's a great irony uh, in this conversation, which is that we're talking via Zoom right now. And Zoom, I think, is one of the great potential competition stories of the time, demonstrating that before Zoom came along, there were a half dozen video conferencing uh, platforms and they all were terrible. They were, uh, I used three or four of them trying to do remote teaching for students and Zoom is easier, better, more efficient than any of them. They all existed um, and uh, thanks to a, uh, uh, the non-existence of a non-compete, uh, Zoom was allowed to enter into the market and create this incredible platform that's easy to use that really, I think, demonstrates uh, the viability of entry in a lot of these technology markets where your goal isn't to be acquired, but actually to disrupt the market. I, I hear that with respect to Zoom, but I wonder if Zoom is, you know, an, an anomaly because so many other smaller firms, you, if you go, to, I mean, if you go to, I think it's, it's been a while since I've looked at it, but if you go to Google's Wikipedia page, for example, it will show you how many firms uh, Google has actually acquired rather than innovating those technologies themselves. And so I guess the question is, you know, it's an empirical one ultimately, right? Which is, do we have more innovation because firms like Google have the finances to, you, you, you made this comment that the, what's, what's innovated is decided by the VC side, but ultimately it's because of who's going to acquire it after that and who has the money to purchase it. And so 
if you have someone like Google, for example, who has a suite of services and it fits within their portfolio of services and they think it's actually attractive to acquire you because you can fit within the suite of services, then maybe that's the kind of things that VCers will invest in then. But the point is like, wouldn't we have more competition if Google just innovated those themselves and we had these innovators and entrepreneurs and disruptors that were continuing to innovate on their own and not with the eye towards so, right, This but, sounds but, like a so, great but, argument but, for but, patent but, law. But the, I mean, I think the, uh, I, I think the assumption here is, right, Google will develop something on its own and it'll either be good or bad and a bunch of companies will develop uh, something similar and compete with it. Uh, and maybe as with Zoom, right, a new one will come in and, and, uh, and drive it, right? But I think that's, it's that assumption that we're losing, right? And so, right, if, if Google's going to buy up anybody who looks like a competitor or anybody who looks like a kind of complementary company that might serve as a platform that uh, pivots the market, um, well, then we're losing competition. But I think it's actually worse than that because... Jennifer, I think your assumption is, well, Google's going to buy this up and deploy it. Sometimes that well, happens. Sometimes they don't, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. But a lot of times they do nothing they buy with it. Up, a lot of times they buy it up and do nothing with it, either because, as Gus says, this is really an aqua hire. It's a strategy for, for getting the employees. Um, or because it is a competitive threat to them. Right. Uh, right and they bury it. Uh, or, you know, I mean, somewhere in between could be, well, you know, they're just not as committed. They're not as interested in it, right? They're not, they don't, they're not going to put the time uh, into it that the startup uh, founders who developed it would. And for some combination of these reasons, an enormous number of the companies, not just that Google, but that all of these companies, Facebook and Apple buy, those technologies don't end up getting kind of shared and deployed in the marketplace and given a, a, a bigger uh, uh, customer base, uh, a lot of them disappear never to be seen again. Well, so, or you, you just made a really great point, Mark, that I want to highlight. Um, so uh, uh, first, one of the puzzles, one of the fundamental challenges in this area is these are network industries. We're talking about network effects, network economies. So the uh, uh, trade-off, the juxtaposition frequently isn't between uh, Facebook offering an Instagram competitor and having Instagram out there. It's between after a short period of time, which one is going to be the dominant platform in the market. And if the outcome is we're going to have one Instagram, it's probably better for Facebook to just acquire the nascent Instagram and expose them, expand them to a billion users overnight instead of going through a growth process. But the point that Mark makes is really important. Um, uh, uh, the startup company tends to be more responsive to, more attentive to uh, customer needs, how the product is being used. I, again, going to Zoom, just over the last year, Zoom has had a lot of really great product enhancements. Look at Gmail over the last 10 years. Every change they've made has made the product worse. Every change to Google Maps has made the product worse. I don't think these people even use the product anymore. They're just coming up with ways to make the product worse. Uh, On the bright side, you have a new Facebook. That's not true of Apple, though, right? I mean, <laughs> Apple spends a lot of money on consumer, you know, on, on consumer testing and things like that because they, you know, they've figured out there's a business model there. So uh, I'm in the abusive relationship of a Google product uh, ecosystem. So I, I can't speak to the Apple ecosystem. <laughs> I, I, so I, I guess um, I just want to make a couple of a couple of remarks. So I, I guess the first one is in response to this idea that sometimes they just acquire uh, firms and then they do nothing with it. Um, and sometimes what they do is they purchase them, maybe possible or acquire them possibly with an eye towards developing it or rolling it out. But they don't. But ultimately, what they do is expanded their IP portfolio. So what they really do is then when you then have another innovator come along and innovate the same thing, some smaller. Um, shop, they then just bring lawsuits against them and to assert those patents that they acquired in an earlier time. Um, but then the second thing is that, and this sort of takes us into some other terrain, and maybe this is a, a good place for us to end and, and maybe um, pick up in some other conver conversation another time, is we might think that having uh, an acquisition of Instagram, that only having one Instagram is, is a good thing rather than having 
multiple Instagrams because of network effects. But at the same time, when you have machine learning and data acquisition, um, uh, one firm, for example, or a few firms having control over a lot of personal information, that is actually an argument for against the benefits of network effects. I, I would rather have multiple players so that way all of my private information is not held with one or two or three firms, but rather multiple firms. It's a lot harder to concatenate that information in some meaningful way and put together a complete profile of who and what I am. So I, I, I don't know if any of you have some closing thoughts about the, the privacy implications of that, but um, as I said, I know that takes us into a, a new terrain, but, um, but I, I, I open it for, for just some closing remarks if you have any thoughts about that. Gus, Mark, Jacob. So, I mean, I'll say um, I, on, the, on the patent piece, um, uh, I'll just say briefly, I think that is in general a risk, the acquiring the larger patent portfolios and using them to keep out uh, uh, innovators. It has not seemed to be the risk in Silicon Valley, right? Google has filed zero patent lawsuits. I think Apple has filed one in its history. Uh, Facebook has filed none, right? In Silicon Valley, it's the old and dead companies that, uh, and the and the ones that never took off that are the uh, that are the IP aggressors. Um, on the on the privacy front, I think there's um, this is a really hard set of issues in part because I think privacy advocates want a number of different things, not all of which are compatible uh, with each other. Um, uh, and um, uh, so one of the things that makes me nervous about using antitrust as a privacy tool is, uh, I think there's a perfectly good story that we've got a monopolistic market in certain of, of data, uh, but what that means is that Google gets to basically uh, charge more money uh, to uh, fewer people and release our data to fewer people, uh, right? And what a competitive open market in that world would mean, I think, is more people get to buy and sell more of our data for less money, uh, and it'll be passed around uh, uh, to more people. From a market perspective, that's a good thing, right? That's a more efficient market, that's more valuable, but it's the opposite of what privacy advocates want. Uh, and so I think one of the things that to think about is Right. Does the point that Jennifer makes about, well, you know what, just having all of this data in one place is a bad thing in and of itself might be true. I think it's actually maybe more complicated than that, but there's certainly some harms associated with it. How does that weigh against the, uh, the fact that in a more competitive market, what we're actually likely to see, I think, is more flow of data about us rather than less uh, among more actors, not all of whom are going to be responsible players. I would just add to that uh, two things. First, uh, there is a uh, there are many cross currents. Um, one of the cross currents is uh, I'm not sure that's actually more efficient from a market uh, perspective to have lots of companies having different chunks of data, even if more have all the data, because the value of the data is having the large data set that you can analyze as a single data set. Um, so uh, uh, there is a loss of the value of the data if it's not held by a single entity. Um, uh, I'm not saying it should be held by a single entity. I'm uh, saying that that's a confounding factor, and this is a really complex set of issues. Um, on the security side of things, um, if you have a single point of failure, if you have the data held uh, by a single entity, uh, that makes the cost of a breach uh, uh, more great, and it increases the value of compromising single targets. Um, so uh, you have that as a, uh, a related topic. And beyond that, I'd say, I really look forward to our discussion of this uh, at some point in the future because it's another uh, hour and a half uh, right there. So, so thank you, um, Mark and Vic, uh, Jacob and Gus. Uh, Brian, I don't know if you have any closing comments as well, but it was really nice chatting with all of you and having uh, a drink, especially during this time when, aside from the three other people I live with, I haven't really seen anyone else. Yeah, all I got to say is, Jennifer, you did a fantastic job uh, hosting this episode, and I'm really glad you suggested this initially. I found this conversation incredibly thought-provoking and productive, and I'm really glad we were able to make this happen. See you guys all soon, I hope. Thank and, you. And I'm, I'm hopeful I'll see oh, you I am going to get a drink.
in person. <laughs> Thank you. 